0: So to start off on that note, to start off on that idea, that that identity of God, that he is Jaira, he is sustainer, he is provider. Has anyone felt that to be true in their lives? I think, yeah, I think, yeah, more, more, more than that, maybe a, a hand clap, because there's people, come on, how many of you have thought of that to be true? Because... Because here's why. Because there's people in this place that are probably going through a difficult time and need to be reminded and need to know that there are others in here with that round of applause, with that ability to affirm it and say, yes, I have seen him be enough in our life. And so let's praise him for who he is every single Sunday. I want to say welcome to you. Um, Thank you for being here. If you're new, um, we do have connect cards like uh, Elder Dumas had mentioned earlier. Um, If there are any kids who are still left in the service, you go ahead and be dismissed to their classes right now, um, just to make sure that we have that um, that figured out. And then one quick mention before we get started today is a, an, uh, a quick little non-announcement. There are CGDNA classes. This is our class for people who are still checking things out. Newcomers are just wanting to know more about our church, wanting to know more about the history of who we are, what we stand for, what we believe in, the values that make us tick. That's happening right after service today. And so if you're new here today, or there are some people that we know that have been around for a while that we sent some quick uh, emails out and invites, here this week. If you're interested in that, go ahead and find us in the fourth and fifth grade room. That's this east hall wing on the north side, the first uh, door on your left-hand side, and we'll be leading you through that. Um, and anyone is welcome, even if you're here for the first time and you're just like, oh, I want to find out. Let's, let's figure this out. There is some sandwiches provided um, for those who stick around a little bit. Uh, there will be some lunch that's in there too. Um, well, first of all, let me say this as an acknowledgement, but also as a celebration. Today is the first Sunday of Black History Month. All right? Amen? Now, over the last few years, we've done a few different things for Black History Month. Uh, on one occasion, um, we borrowed from another church, uh, Roosevelt, uh, I think it's just Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, um, an associated church of, of mine that I have some friends at, and they put out a kind of a social media campaign called Black Historians, Black Theologians, sorry, that you should know about. And so every single day in Black History Month, they posted those, and a few, later, few years later, we saw that, and we posted some of those same tiles a couple years ago. Well, last year, we wanted to highlight highlight black-owned businesses, especially during COVID when businesses were struggling. And so we gave a, a list of different businesses that are black-owned that we wanted to highlight here in this area for you to be aware of and to frequent in your um, uh, support of, 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 black, uh, of the black community in this um, area. And so in many ways, I want to I say this because it'll tie in here in just a minute, but in many ways, the Bible's history is black history. All right? If you haven't heard that before, you've heard it now for the first time, maybe you've always just known that because you read it and you realized that the ethnicities and nations present are very much in the Middle East and Northern Africa in their inception. And in many ways, the history of the Bible, the history of God's people, is black history. And so our Justice and Rec team during this time, we're trying to figure out what do we want to do this year. And so they came together to figure out some ways that we can participate and celebrate black history as a church. So Dr. Theron Williams, who's a local... Uh, a a local person, a local guy. Uh, I don't know if he's a pastor. Is he a pastor specifically? Yeah, he's a local pastor. But Dr. Theron Williams, he wrote a book. He was a a guest on our podcast. I think the very final guest in our first season of our podcast where we were interviewing um, black clergy and faith leaders in the area Um, has written this book called The Bible is Black History. And then he wrote some accompanying children's and youth books also. Some of which are available now, right now. We have some picture books that are available right now for those who are here. And then we've also got some copies of both the regular book that he wrote, the original one, and then some of the other um, resources that he put together. Uh, we're going to make those available as we have them uh, to some of you. And we do ask that if you take it and read it, please bring it back because we want to keep it circulating around in this area. We have a number of items to help show solidarity with the black community, such as um, some stickers that are to come, uh, masks that you see some people wearing here this morning um, with African-themed colors on them. We're going to have some yard signs that are going to be put out in the front of our building. We're just waiting on those to be finished. But, Part of it is that we want um, our congregation, but also our public testimony to be known that we are in support of the black community. And so this Sunday, as a part of all of this, throughout February, uh, or sorry, the final Sunday in February, we're going to have a final celebration where we encourage you to wear your Sunday best you can wear the colors black, red, and green in solidarity um, as, as a part of that, but there will also be a special presentation of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as the Black National Anthem. Um, so there's some, some really cool things that are happening here as we uh, go through this month. Just keep a lookout for it. We'll also be posting some things online and um, some ways that you can support and, and just keep this at the forefront of our mind. Now, today we're starting a new series that uh, um, for... for um, in some ways has been in my head, in my heart for a long time, something that I've wanted to preach on in a while, which is just this idea of, of what is the topic uh, in the scriptures of justice, the topic of righteousness, topics of um, of resistance, and the different ways in which we are supposed to engage in these things. So during this, this month, what I'm going to do is um, focus, this series is called Righteous Resistance, and every week this um, during this part of the series, we are going to pull from scripture a definition or a directive from God about justice and its connection to righteousness, about the idea of righteous resistance, and then we're going to connect that to a part of black history, such as the Civil Rights Movement and even some modern events. Um, When we move to March, we'll broaden that scope into a few other ideas. We have a guest speaker coming in at the end of this month. Pastor Johnson Bevan is coming later on. I'm really excited about that. I had a chance to talk with him on the phone earlier this week, and I'm excited for what he is going to bring and what he's going to offer here. So uh, it's an exciting month. We get to kick this off. It's exciting because um, we just see God blessing us, too, with new people checking out our church. That's continuing to happen. And so you're going to see us offering up the CG DNA stuff more and more frequently. Um, Man, and I just wanted to stop before we get going. I want to pray and ask God to be with us as we kick off this series, to be with us as we deal with possibly another controversial um, topic. At least it can get itself its way into controversial areas. Um, But I want us to be Bible-centered in this and what we mean by it. But I also want to just thank God for what He's doing, the movement that's taking place inside of Common Ground North these. Would you join me with prayer? Yes, yeah, so Lord, we thank you for, um, for what you've done here, for what you're doing here, God. Just all the people that are coming to check out, either because of some of the values that we've taken on as a church. Maybe it's just this side of COVID. People are finally loosening up and able to check out churches that have moved into this area, Lord. And so if this is the church for them, God, and I know that we are a flavor, <laughs> we're not everyone's flavor, uh, But God, if we are, let them find us. Let us find them and let us be a community of righteous resistance. Let us be a community of justice. Let us be a community of common ground, of making the essentials, the essentials and the non-essentials out to the edges. Father, that's our heart. That's what we want to be. We want to be courageous. We want to empower people. And so, Father, make that true of our congregation. And God, um, we just remember just as we're celebrating black history, we also know that there's been some threats on some of the historically black universities and colleges. God, would you protect them? Would you uh, not allow any evil to uh, fall upon them, God? And uh, Lord, I do pray in this place, Lord, we would see the fulfillment of revelations, at least some likeness, some fulfillment of Revelation 7-9, every tribe, tongue, nation, culture, ethnicity, people would find a home in our church. We pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen Amen and Amen. Well, as I prepared for this series, I thought of this story, something that happened to me, wherein I saw an example of injustice. And I had to act. It burned within me to the extent that I kind of threw off the idea of consequences, threw off the fear, and just kind of acted. I was in fourth grade happily playing Foursquare inside of the recess uh, that, that morning on a, on a regular just day of the week. And I saw one student off in the distance. I knew his name, his name was Andy. We weren't like close. but as I saw him, you remember those dome uh, uh, the, I guess they're monkey bar handles, you know what I'm saying, but it's like in a dome shape. Um, and I think They don't have those anymore, but this is what was out there, and there were three kids, like a classic trio of goons, picking on poor Andy, who is a classic example of kind of the nerdy kid at our school. And he's over there, I don't know why they were over there together, but you've got the leader who's kind of calling shots, you've got the big goon kid who's just doing whatever he's told, and then you've got that toady who's just like cheering him on, like picking on this little kid. And what caught my attention, I don't know why it was this and nothing else, but I kept watching him try to get up and they kept pushing him back down. And then he push up off the ground, they kind of roll a little bit further away, and they push him, and I'm sitting there with this rubber ball, right, like sitting there looking at him, and it was just like, nope. Not going to happen. And so I start running towards these kids, and as I see them get up, I'm like getting angrier and angrier. I begin running faster and faster. Now now I want you to know I'm not the tough guy in school. I was never known for that. I was never very athletic as a kid. I was really good at Super Mario Brothers, all right, if that helps you understand where, where I'm at. But because of my size, I'm always bigger than other kids in our school. And so I just start picking up speed, picking up momentum. I've got some weight to me, so that's coming along for the ride. And I remember watching the leader because I was just like, who's the next one to push Andy down? I see him push the kid down, make eye contact with me right before I just, boom, slam into this kid full speed. Like I didn't have any tactic. I had no strategy. It was just my weight transferred into him. It knocked him so hard that he flipped and he was on the inside of the dome. Thank God, because I was terrified. Once it realized what I'd done, I'm like, that kid can beat me up. And so I back up, and he kind of hits the bars because he can't get out fast enough. So I'm protected by the bars a little bit, just in time for me to be like, what did I do? Why did I do this? Picked a fight with three kids, and then... The whistle blows. A teacher sees it, Car comes walking over. I'm like, yes, saved by this situation. So Andy gets up and he's like, man, thank you. And this is no joke. This is what the kid says in, in the bars because he knows he can't get away with anything. The teacher's watching. He looks at me and he's like, my brother is going to bring a knife tomorrow and stab you. I believed him. It never happened. But I believed him and I was afraid. That kid was in sixth grade already, like two, two or so years older than me, and so I knew that he could already cause some damage, and he was on my bus. And so all through the rest of this year, at least the next few months, I'm walking in fear of two things, right? Two things. Could I get suspended? Like, there's actual repercussions to what I just did. And so as I'm dealing with this situation, I, I kinda, it, it all sobers up, right? The adrenaline wears off. Like, am I actually going to get stabbed? Am I going to get suspended? There were consequences to the kind of behavior that I had just displayed, but something inside of me in that moment just threw it all to the side and went to go rescue Andy in that moment. Now, I wasn't necessarily trying to become best buds with Andy, but he never left my side from that day on. Like Andy, the kid who's the nerd, right? He's just kicking it with me always, right? It was out of character for me to spontaneously attack another child, so this is what happened. They called me into the office and they said, "What happened, man? Like you don't do this." They basically just sided with me the whole time because it was so abnormal for me to do something like this. I completely got away with it. They said, "As a formality, I need your parents to sign this form." My parents signed this form, and they kind of give me some very minor um, consequences. Um, I don't know what happened to the other kids. They never, you know, the kid's brother never brought any weapons to school. Uh, Other than that, and then having a new friend for the rest of my life in Andy. I took a few shoulder checks when these kids would pass me in the hall way and the teachers weren't looking. Outside of that, nothing ended up happening, but there was some real-life consequences to this. Some things transferred from Andy to me because all of that anger and all of that um, uh, whatever you would call it, the, 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 uh, uh, I guess the oppression, the danger that was under, uh, going, moving towards him then began to be my own problem as well. All right, I'm the hero in this story, but I want to admit to you that I have also seen injustice and not acted. I have seen injustice and looked the other way. I have seen injustice and I have ignored it. I've thought, that's not my problem. This isn't my thing to deal with. I have busy things to go about doing all the time. In fact, yesterday, some guy was changing a tire in our parking lot as we were trying to figure out all of the stuff that was going on with the ice on our roof. And I wanted to just pass him. And I'm like, I'm preaching this message tomorrow. i got to talk to this guy. He t- I stopped by. I'm like, dude, what do you need? Do you need help? Anything? Water? Do you need warm up in the, in the building? he's like, no, I got everything I need, man. I'll be able to change this. I was just hoping I wouldn't have to change it. I could just fill it and get home. So he's doing the tire thing. Um, he's like, really, man, you got four kids in the car. Just go ahead and, and head on. But before he left, he's like, hey, man, I want, you to know, I want you to know my name because one day we'll meet in heaven, like indicating I'm a Christian and you're the pastor, right? And so we exchanged names, and he said, thanks, man. I really, really, really appreciate that you stopped and at least checked in on me. So it was valuable to him in some way, shape, or form. But honestly, man, I wanted to keep going. I had other things I was trying to get to. I was trying to move on. And there's all kinds of reasons why we see injustice and don't act. And so part of what I want us to do in this is to surface the idea in your hearts and your minds. What we're doing here is to examine what compels us to intervene when we see an act of injustice. What compels us to not? What what causes us to be like, nah, not now. I'm not going to deal with this right now. Have you ever stopped to ask even where we get our ideas of fairness and equity and justice anyways? Right? We, we have to sort through all kinds of stuff that will often feel unclear in a moment. What does justice and equality look like? Is it determined by access and opportunity, or is it determined by dignity or something else completely different, and who gets to determine right and wrong? How do we measure it? How do we gauge it? So these are all questions I want us to deal in over the next few weeks as we work through this series, and here, these I want you to realize that these are important because it's possible for us, given the name righteous resistance, it is possible for us to resist the wrong thing. It is possible for us to resist the right thing unrighteously. It is possible for us to be self-righteous and not engage resistance at all just because it's done in the name of, quote, keeping the peace. But God calls us uniquely as people amongst all creation, all right, and uniquely as Christians amongst humanity to be a people of righteous resistance. It's a part of the entire narrative of the scriptures, and we hope to show you that in this series. And I want you to hear this. It's uniquely human that it is, it, there is no sense of justice or fairness in nature. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the praying mantis eats its own mate. No one has a problem with it. The panda will have twins and often abandon one to take care of the other one. And no one steps in to say, hey, that wasn't right. Often we don't even know it happens. A lion eats its its prey without even a thought. Nobody attempts to charge the lion with murder or put it on trial for doing something wrong like taking the life of another you say, well, yeah, that's not true. I saw Lion King, right? Both the Beyonce and the, Dan- the, the Donald Glover version and the old school cartoon version of it, right? And if there's anything this symbol wants to teach us, it is the circle of what? Oh, that wasn't as many people as I thought. Maybe you haven't seen the Lion King, right? Well, I'll, I'll have to explain that narrative some other time. But inside a lion king, if, if you see that, it's like, no, it's all fair because we die and give to the, uh, to the ground, and the ground produces fruit, which produces food for the, you know, the animals that eat the, the, of those things, and then the, the, um, the predators eat those, and it all kind of works out fair because it's the circle of life. But what's really happening there is that it's just humans giving our own attributes. We're trying to make sense of the injustice that we actually witness inside of nature all the time. So if you ask a lion out in the wild, Hey man, why is that gazelle's mouth hanging out of your leg? What's his answer? I'm a lion. That's what I do. And then he will eat you without remorse for asking the question. No consequence, no understanding of right, wrong, or difference. So I want you to hear that. It's uniquely human of us that it separates us from the animal kingdom that we would try to make sense of the chaos that is now natural in what we call, from a Christian point of view, a fallen world. So we're morally endowed beings in a morally disordered world. It tries to, we're the ones, in the, in the very few that try to make a straight path inside of the wild. We try to reorder what, is, what has been disordered in the universe and bring it back to the creator's intention. Because remember, that everything in the beginning, beginning was made good. And it was made with that intention. It was ordered so it was good. It was interconnected. It was all working well. The lion and the lamb lay together without the consequence of death inside of it. And Genesis 1 and 2 is just like a Jenga build. I think we have a picture up there. I meant to bring a Jenga set here today, but I forgot it. Look how nice and neat and ordered that thing is. I love me some Jenga. It's one of my favorite games to play as a kid. But what happened is, imagine this on a giant scale, and if this is the order of creation, it's just three blocks one way, three blocks this way, three blocks one way, and it builds this perfect thing. Now, you've seen those big yard ones every once in a while, they have those giant ones, so imagine that, but imagine instead of just three rows, ten or a thousand rows, and it's all stacked perfectly. Perfectly. And when the order of creation was disrupted, it wasn't just one block taken out. The rest can stand with that. The entire thing was completely toppled over, knocked to the ground, disheveled. Now, with a normal Jenga game, we can stack that up pretty quick. But if you had thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces and everyone was in the exact corner it had to be in, that's all but impossible to put back together the way it was supposed to be. And so our creation is shattered. It's a mess. It's on pieces on the ground, just a pile of blocks impossible to bring back without God helping us. And the crazy thing is we were not untouched by it. And so not only are we built with something in us that wants to straighten and reorder the things that were disordered, that's the new norm, disorder. We were actually disordered ourselves. So on the most basic level, I want us to see that our righteous resistance is our determined effort to reject chaos as the new norm of our fallen world, to work against that. It is our mandate to reconcile things back to the way that God created it so that we resist the scrambled mess of a giant mess of blocks sitting on the ground. We represent on God's behalf to rebuild what has been broken, what is unequitable, what is unrighteous, what is unjust. And so in order to have a righteous resistance, in order for us to participate that as those who have been touched by the brokenness and the chaos... We have to go to the story of God, the story of God's creation, the story of God who is a God of promise, a God of reconciliation, a God of liberation, a God of emancipation, a God of restoration. We want to engage this matter correctly. We have to know what is right and wrong according to God's measuring rod. Because we're not only um, untouched, we're participants. We are perpetrators of the chaos in the midst of this. Because isn't it true that we all have a tendency to bend the circumstances to kind of help ourself in a situation? Isn't it true that we tend to define and then redefine right and wrong in ways that are convenient and favor ourselves or our people or our us as defined by any number of a group of them that we want to um, point out? So we come to God because we need God to, and this is a very biblical term, straighten our crooked hearts, all right? So, what does Yahweh do in this situation? How does he speak to this? What can we learn from the Bible on this topic? And I have a few things that I want us to look at. And the first thing I want us to do is to establish. A well-known historic doctrine. I won't spend much time on it because we've touched on it before, but the doctrine of the Imago Day, which comes from Genesis 1:26 and 27. Let me read it really quick. We'll establish that and then we'll build upon it. The Imago Day is in uh, it says this. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own. Image and in the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. So the idea of rights and inherent dignity, by inherent I mean unearned, has nothing to do with your productivity on this earth. Your inherent dignity comes from the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Now, this is somewhat unique to the Christian um, faith. Other faiths and other philosophies have come into agreeing with it along the way, but first and foremost, we get to look back at the history of God's people and say image of God always, always built in to his people. They didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to do anything. You heard the song today. You don't have to have a trophy to know that it's yours. You don't have to do the best things. God just says you have value, dignity, and respect that has elevated you amongst all other things in creation, not based on productivity, again, not based on your level of contribution to society, not uh, able to be changed. The image of God is inside of every single person, all right? So that's great, that's theoretical, that's individual on that level, but it doesn't always work itself out nicely in the real world, right? Right? It's a totally different thing to walk around and interact with this reality knowing that it has implications on social structures, on the way things are built, on what justice is. So how do we build beyond the individual into a society that honors the image of God in all people, given our circumstances, our different capabilities, our advantages, disadvantages, things that tend to create social capital and hierarchies that say you are worth more, you are worth less, you are higher on this positioning, you are lower in this positioning. So I want us to look at some key verses that God gives us to make sense of it. So the second thing, past the Imago Day, the first is the Imago Day. The second one is that biblical justice should look like these few things, starting in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now the focus is giving voice to those who don't have it, either literally or figuratively in their society because they don't have power or they don't have money or they don't have anyone's attention, nobody cares what they have to say. And so the scripture tells us to notice first, to involve ourselves in the affairs of those, and it uses these uh, these descriptions, the um, the poor, those who cannot speak for themselves, and the destitute. That we should righteously resist those who are causing the destitution by using your power, your voice on behalf of the voiceless. All right, simple enough. Let's look at another one Jeremiah 22 3. This is what the Lord says Do what is right, or sorry, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or violent, do, do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So notice that the two words just and right are coupled together. This is a very common thing in Hebrew because though those words are not commonly associated, with righteousness and justice in our language and in our day, they are very intricately related vocabulary words inside of Hebrew. We're gonna come back to that, but you'll see it over and over again. Related together, justice and righteousness. So this verse serves to highlight those who are oppressed. The foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, these are names specifically that we should create a community, listen to this, where those people who fit into those categories do not have to worry about their safety. That they're not walking around worried about who might take advantage of them. So in this context, that's what's being created. That when somebody comes into your area, into your city, you should make it such that the people who fit into these categories would not walk in with fear and trepidation that somebody might try to take advantage of them. So we're compelled in this verse to engage, as it says here, as rescuers who righteously resist those who would cause fear in the hearts of the poor, the needy, the foreigner, the fatherless. Let's take a look at Psalm 146, 6 through 9. And I want you to notice the proximity of the created order um, to this and the human order. Verse 6, it says, And he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause. So he has ordered creation. Now this, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates. Some translations say thwarts. I like that one better. He thwarts the ways of the wicked. And so those who are challenged either in, sorry, again, so those, the emphasis I want to point out again is on the oppressed, on the foreigner, on the orphan, on the widow, and those who are challenged in their abilities. So the Lord loves the righteous, Those who do what is right. He thwarts. Did you hear that? You can't thwart by watching it go down from afar. You can't thwart anything by ignoring it, by not noticing it, or by noticing it and doing nothing. He thwarts the ways of the wicked. And so as the Lord does... We are to step into the pathway of the wicked and righteously resist them, thwart and cause trouble to the wicked. Now, this is a good term, one of my favorite terms, good trouble. The kind that John Lewis talked about, that he coined, he termed, he says, get into good trouble, necessary trouble. He said, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to speak up. You have to say something. You have to do something. So if you're following the righteous resistance and the justice described in the Bible, you will notice that there is a consistent people being pointed out, and there is a consistent mode of operation that compels you, don't do nothing. Well, for who? Well, he gives us that. Well, what are we supposed to do? Not nothing. Well, f- for who? because we like to catch ourselves in this trap. Like, I can easily let myself off the hook if I can not name the who. Well, I gave you the who. Well, what do you want me to do? Don't do nothing. It's time to stop that loop back and forth. And so remember, here's this, this is what it's called, the special emphasis on the object of the action, the who, is a consistent set of people that scholars have come to call the quartet of the vulnerable. Naming the widows, the orphans, the immigrants and the poor, This is a word that refers poor, is a word that refers both to those in economic distress and social outcasts. So Tim Keller says this, justice is the sign that you have been justified by faith. It's not the basis. You aren't justified because you're helping the poor, but a heart poured out in deeds of mercy and justice for the poor is a sign that you have been saved by grace. And if you are intensely concerned about the quartet of the vulnerable, which we just named, it's a sign that your heart is not right with God. So your salvation doesn't depend on it, but it definitely is a connection there that we should be doing something about this. Now I want to kind of recap just some little things. We'll switch gears one spot and then we'll finish up for the day. Here's what we've talked about so far. That it's this idea of justice, righteousness should be built on the truth of the Imago Day that everyone has inherent value. Okay, that's the first thing. That, that, that it's uh, justice is always coupled with the idea of righteousness as defined by God. That's two. And that we are always to be compelled to get involved rather than not in in matters of injustice. And then fourth, that we are to be focused intensely on the widows, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, the quartet of the vulnerable. Okay? So that's what we've covered kind of for that's a that's a base level understanding of where we're at. Now shifting just quickly gears, while everyone says that they want justice, we can almost always never understand or figure out what and how to create that. Amen? If you're in America, you have nothing but amens to say in this moment, right? None of us ever agree on how to make this work out. And so there's human theories. One law expert um, that I borrowed from Michael Sandel, he explains in his book, it's called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, um, that people in America and the West love to herald ideas of liberty and ideas of justice, but live in a subculture of their own who have totally different core values to define justice for themselves. That's true, Right? Right now, that should not be controversial. We should have all gotten there, right? Like, we all don't agree. He gives us a few different angles by which we tend to look at it, and he says almost all um, of your ideas of justice, political orientation, all these things can be boiled down to these three things. I'll do them quickly. One is the maximizing welfare view. It's focused on communal welfare. Justice is defined by us doing what uh, will do the greatest amount of good and reduce the greatest amount of harm for most people. Um, This usually involves socialist uh, ideas, redistribution as a tactic, right? That's kind of the more progressive side of that coin. Um, One of the major things that that constantly gets pointed out is that um, everyone is up to their own to determine what is the greatest good and what is the greatest harm, right? You have to define those at some point, and that's also a point of disagreement. So we have this welfare kind of focus. Then the next one is an individual liberty, respecting the freedom view is what he calls it, that justice is defined by that which creates the most amount of respect for the individual rights and freedoms of every person and that a just society should adapt and give as many accommodations to give everyone all the freedoms that they can possibly have. So it protects freedom and liberty in the midst of this. So it's usually expressed in libertarianism if you're um, thinking in the political realm. Catch it, that's just one aspect of it, though. That's how that that gets expressed in those areas, but this is not necessarily a political um, orientation. It tends to work itself out there. Then the last one is a promoting virtue, that there are a set focused, uh, sorry, a set view of of virtues, and it's focused on those. Justice is what is going to shape a society to act as they ought to according to moral virtue. Again, the question is, but who gets to define moral virtue in the midst of that, Right? So it assumes that there is a standard of moral virtue, usually expressed in conservativism um, inside of our American context. All right. So here are these three different views. They're all like kind of working against each other, depending. And honestly, we, we have, well, I'll get to this, but, but you'll catch it. They, they actually overlap to some extent, whether you want to ag- agree with that or see that or not, they do overlap. We might be using, so here's one observation. You and I, if we come from two different angles, we could be using the same word, freedom, liberty, justice, et cetera. And we're talking about two completely different things, Right. That's possible. We're not even talking about the same thing. I feel like I've been in conversations where that has happened. Two, we have, all been ca- we have competing interests and values that we weigh different, right? So you might actually like all of those in some way, shape, or form, but one is a higher value and one is a much less um, c- uh, uh, valued than the others is. And then catch this. You will actually switch those based on your moment, your circumstance, the things that have happened to you. And so all of a sudden you go through a hard and difficult time. You might switch from one over to the welfare mode because you're in need of that in that moment. So that makes the most sense to you given your circumstance. And then you might switch over to a different one because you're doing well. And look, I, I just want all my freedoms. I feel like my freedoms are being compromised. So I want that to be upheld. And so you will actually change Based on your circumstance and experiences. The third thing is that we all have a tendency to bend the values to fit our current situation. We talked about this earlier. We will redefine right and wrong in a way that is convenient and favors whoever you decide your people are. And then lastly, we tend to exist in a camp first. Then read the scriptures and assume that it just affirmed what I already believe. Right? Right? Okay, so all of these are pretty clear. I would say I have one example. If you know um, you know Romans 13, that we're supposed to obey the governments that are in front of us. Um, I feel like I watch conservatives quote it when the policies begin to agree with them. And they're like, well, the Bible tells us we're supposed to listen to the... Um, government. And then as soon as that switches, someone's like, well, hey, uh, now that the, cons- the, the more progressive ideas are being heralded in the government, uh, hey, the, the Bible said that we're supposed to follow everything that they say. I've literally watched that happen within the last year, both sides quoting that verse against each other, hoping to get somebody in alignment with their own agenda. All right. I want us to understand that we need to think about these things, that it's going to be very, very difficult. It takes a lot of discipline to put those assumptions aside and to just ask Jesus, what is justice according to you, according to your scriptures? What is it that you have to say, God? And so I'm asking us all to do that. Put that aside to some extent Right? You don't have to just throw out everything that you believe, but understand that you're probably caught in these four little circles that tend to cause you not to move outside of your own understanding. And so the question is, how, God, can we put that aside and say, what is it that you tell us to do? Because none of the things that the Scriptures are going to say will land cleanly inside of any of your categories. I promise you. And I guarantee you, if you think it excluded any one of those, it doesn't. It touches on every single one of them. They're all involved because they're values. And I would actually challenge this. If you believe that what the Bible says cleanly agrees with whatever political orientation or understanding you have, you have definitely co-opted the Scriptures. Right? Okay. So it's going to take a lot of discipline for us to think outside of our preconceived notions and come to this. I have one final thing I'll get us out of here really quickly, um, but I want us to have a couple of things just laid down at the outset. One of the ways in which we understand justice and righteousness is very clearly built into the vocabulary of the scripture. There's two Hebrew words, zedakah, which usually means is usually translated as righteousness. Only is an ethical standard that refers to having a right relationship with people. It's very relational in its understanding. It's about treating others well as the image of God is in them and giving them God-given dignity that they deserve. The second that we're going to focus on is mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. One, two, three. Oh, we got it. We're there. It's translated almost always as justice, and it has two main usages, but it is weighted very heavily towards the second. Here's the first one. Retributive justice, meaning you punish an evildoer, a wrongdoer by a standard of justice. So if you steal something, you have to pay it back or deal with the consequences, right? It is kind of righting a wrong. This is what we usually think of with justice. So the word justice is an unfortunate translation inside of our scripture. It's why righteousness needs to be connected to it. So we usually think of this, it's cold, hard facts rendering correction towards an action or a wrongdoing, all right? The second one, and I'm telling you, by and large, like nine times out of ten, this is what the word justice means, restorative justice, and it means making sure that everyone in our communities' rights given through the Imago Day are respected, meaning they are treated fairly and given opportunities to flourish, I'm going to read that again. It means making sure everyone in our community's rights are gi- given through the Amago Day are respected, meaning they are treated fairly and given opportunities to flourish. It's going a step further to seek out the vulnerable. It's going a step further to say who is being taken advantage of and how can I step into that and take that burden on for them. Very specifically, this is what this word means. You might think, well, charity? Well, it's not not charity, although sometimes that word makes sense here. More than that, taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable, changing social structures to prevent injustice. And to illustrate this, I have one final verse. It's the classic verse on justice, and it's Micah 6, 7, and 8. It says this, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? That's the offering, by the way, that doesn't make sense in our time. If I'm going to give a sacrifice, can I give you these, God? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he says, No, he has shown you, O mortal, O human, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, the temptation is to think those are three separate categories, but they're not. They're woven together very purposefully, intentionally connected. The prophecy of Micah is an account of a very angry prophet who is mad because the people who have been rescued from Egypt and an unjust system under the regime of Pharaoh are now acting unjustly themselves. They're taking advantage of those whose land is not as productive and accumulating owners, uh, sorry, owners accumulating bond servants in massive numbers changing the property lines in the middle of the night, just moving the boundary stones, rigging the weight systems and the markets to take advantage of others so that the money favors them and they get more out of each sale. So the people of God are in the midst of this unjust action and Micah says, God doesn't care about your sacrifice. He doesn't care about all the things you can offer up to him. None of that matters. What he wants you to do is plain act justly. That's mishpat, restorative justice, motivated by mercy. That Mishpat should be motivated by something. It's mercy and compassion. Further reinforcing this value of the most vulnerable as defined by God because you have lived a life wherein you humbly walk with Him. And so, the best revealing of the Hebraic understanding of biblical justice is that our codes of conduct or our laws, the laws that we have agreed to abide by, should be weighted in mercy and created so that they proactively protect the most vulnerable in our society. Well, who. We said it. It's the quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. There is a recognition inside of their justice system that a broken world tends to bend towards and benefit those who are in power, those who have majority standing. That's the norm and the countermeasure. Society's leaders and God's people should build a social system to benefit the vulnerable. When that is not so. We are to insert ourselves into the midst of that situation and righteously resist against a system that marginalizes them. All right. So no matter where you fit earlier, whether you're welfare, liberty, virtue, if you want to operate under biblical justice, that's what it is. That's the definition. That's what the words literally mean. And you have to embrace that both personally and communally, a radical way of selfless life, of creating a social system that always, always involves prioritizing vulnerable people and courageously making other people's problems your own, even at the cost of the most powerful, including when you are in that category yourself. I want to close up with this idea. Um, we have lots of excuses. I, I had lots of excuses for not getting involved all the time. I have them all the time. Fear of the possible consequences. What if this person means harm for me? I saw someone on the middle of the road one night driving to Common Ground like five in the morning, and I drove past him. He had no shirt on, no shoes. I'm like, oh, great, a drunk guy just kicking it out here. He's fine. He'll figure it out. Like, plenty of people have been here, and I get to the stop sign. I'm like, yeah, but I called you to be the kind of person who stops when other people won't. So I turned around, dude vanished, all right? I don't know if it's thin air, I don't know if it was an angel. God was like, I just wanted to see if you'd do it. I don't know. I yelled for him. I'm out there in the middle like a wild person, like, hey, yelling out. Nothing, nowhere. But it was so inconvenient, I almost stopped, uh, didn't stop because I was late to go get ready for sermons on Sunday morning. Inconvenience right? That we conclude that's not my problem. It's not who You're not sure who's the wrong in here, and so you just like, it's too complicated. I'm just going to step out of this situation. I don't want to look at all the details. There's too much involved, and the ironic tragedy is that the Bible, it, it, of the Bible, is that God's people might be found committing the same acts of injustice that God has worked to free them from, whether they be inactively participating in them through a lack of mishpat, or we actually perpetrate them by leveraging our social status against them. It's a woeful tragedy. And we can either fail and dishonor God, or we can act and honor God. And you see, when the people in power don't act on their own behalf, others have to. Even the vulnerable themselves, with what little power they have. And you see Rosa Parks standing, uh, sitting on a bus, refusing to give up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955, causes a catalyst of actions amongst the local leaders. A community organizes itself at the Montgomery bus boycott, led by a young MLK at that moment. The boycott lasts for more than a year, and eventually the parks and and, uh, powers at B have to change their ruling. It ended when the Supreme Court ruled the bus segregation was unconstitutional. Over the next half century, Rosa Parks becomes a nationally recognized symbol of dignity and strength, but not to all. Because for a long time, to many people, she was a nuisance. Because for a long time, to many people, she was a rabble rouser. Because for a long time, to many people, God, can't you just leave good enough alone? Well, enough and well enough was not good. And so Rosa Parks righteously resisted on her own behalf. Though there were consequences, God has honored her in this. And so when the powerful refuse mishpat in their day, it's an affront to God. And so we look towards a future much like Pharaoh if we decide to opt out. I want to pray for us as we close up. The band can go ahead and come up. Um, as we close down for today. Um, Here's what I want us to do. I want you to consider yourself. Over the next few weeks, we are going to tell the story of righteous resistance in the Scripture. We're going to give you an example from real life through civil rights, some other um, examples as we go through. But what I want you to do is then ask yourself this question every week over and over and over, God, where am I to be righteously resisting today? Where am I supposed to be a righteous nuisance today? Where am I supposed to interact and engage myself, intervene in a moment of injustice today regardless of the consequence, regardless of the, 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 the possible harm, regardless of the fear so that you can take on the burden of someone else who doesn't have power? So here's my prayer. God, put into us a spirit of righteousness. God, put into us a spirit of justice that is so unnatural in our broken, fallen world, it would resist against the ways of it. Putting us a compulsion to get involved when we'd rather not. Putting us a clear understanding of who needs this help, who needs to be lifted up, whose burden we need to take on for ourselves, God, that we would push back on the natural ways of chaos in a fallen world to create a reordered world that is exactly as you have wanted it to be. Give us the response of righteous resistance, Lord. Help us to be as you have called us to be, Lord. We ask for all these things right now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.